Last Sunday I preached on the topic of the conduct of a godly woman, and I think Elder Tim Pasek had it right. He listened to that one while his wife was helping in the children's ministry program, and I think they've switched this morning. So she's now going to hear about the conduct of a godly man while he is conveniently out of the room. <laughs> this is our 15th sermon in a series in 1 Peter, and the text before us this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Now back when handwriting was a thing, there was also something called a copy book. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you're probably under the age of like 35. A copy book was something that a student used to practice handwriting, and probably the letters were up above the chalkboard, right? Now, the heading in the copy book would have been written by the teacher and often would have been a phrase or perhaps a sentence that was copied by students over and over in order to improve their handwriting. This, by the way, was also used for punishment after class occasionally. Consider this revolutionary era copybook phrase, hard, hard indeed was the contest for liberty. Or simply this one from Psalm 100, worship the Lord, with gladness. What these copybook headings all had in common is they weren't just meaningless words, but were an attempt to, in a short, pithy phrase, capture some traditional wisdom or some common sense about life. Now, some grown-ups think that the fact that we don't practice handwriting anymore is a big problem. But there is a bigger problem the fact that we are losing the traditional wisdom that these copybook phrases represented. Believe it or not, it isn't a new problem. In 1919, British poet Richard Kipling wrote about the traditional wisdom of these copybook headings. The poem is called The Gods of the Copybook Headings. Here's a short excerpt. As I pass through my incarnations in every age and race, I make my proper prostrations before the gods of the marketplace. Peering through reverent fingers, I watch them flourish and fall. And the gods of the copybook headings outlast them all. In this little portion of his poem, it's a brilliant poem, Kipling contrasts the gods of the marketplace, the modern and new gods is what he means to say, with old venerable traditions represented by his phrase, the gods of the copybook headings. These old gods, Kipling says, outlast the new ones. The new ones flourish and fall. They come and go, the new trends, the new fads, the new, the new. One critic analyzing the poem explains Kipling this way, though we try and toy with alternatives to the simple and timeless lessons of wisdom, seeking to invent new ways of thinking about old things, rarely can we improve on that which has stood the test and torment of time. Insert into your thinking the trends of modernism that we witness daily and ask yourself a simple question. 
How do they compare with the wisdom of the ages? Well, the title for my sermon this morning is Man of the House. And this phrase, Man of the House, could very well be just such a copybook heading or a portion of it, perhaps. It's a traditional way of approaching things. It's a, an old God, if you will. And I chose this as my title because, like Kipling's Gods of the Copybook Headings, it is a tried-and-true approach that never passes out of fashion. We're definitely dealing, in my text, with a traditional view. So my attempt, my sermon this morning, is an attempt to dust off that traditional view, to help you see it not just as traditional or conservative or old-fashioned, but actually the best way to live. Especially if you're a young person, you're trying to figure out how to live life or even to be in a relationship or get married in a crazy hell-bent world that is prostrating itself before the gods of the marketplace. Now, this morning's text is a third of three texts that speak to Christians living their lives in something called the household. And the first passage spoke to servants and then the way that they were supposed to live in the life of a Greco-Roman household in the ancient world, 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 to 25. Last Sunday's passage, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, speaks to wives and how they are to conduct themselves in a household. And then this morning, 1 Peter 3, 7, to husbands. So this morning, man of the house, I'm going to describe three characteristics that a Christian man should have in his house. These are characteristics from the Bible, from this passage of Scripture, and they are inspired by God. So I'm going to ask you to open your mind and consider what a man of the house looks like according to the Holy Word of God. But first, let's read the text and then ask for God's blessing on the preaching. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let us pray. Father, as we have read your word and our attention is piqued into the importance of what may seem to be an old-fashioned or out-of-date concept, traditional family roles. We pray, God, that the words of my mouth, the preacher, and the thoughts, the questions, the reflections of each one of our hearts as hearers, Lord, would be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Man of the house, three characteristics. The first one that our text reveals to us is his creational responsibility. Creational responsibility. I looked up in Merriam-Webster, and actually man of the house is a phrase in the dictionary. It's a noun phrase that refers to the male family member who has the most responsibility for taking care of and making decisions about his household. If this phrase has any validity at all, and Webster's isn't saying like it, should be that way or it ought to be that way, just saying this is what the phrase means by most people who use it. I think the phrase does have validity, and I like 
Webster's use of the word responsibility. And so I'm saying that the first characteristic of a man of the house is that he has creational responsibility. What that means is the responsibility that a man of the house has is based on creation. It's based on an original, unfallen, perfect picture of how humanity is designed to flourish. This isn't a function of culture or tradition. It's actually how God designed human beings to prosper in their best and highest sense. So what kind of care or responsibility does Peter call husbands to take with their household? I'm saying it's creational. Now, creation isn't mentioned explicitly in our text. Paul does mention creation in every instance where he talks about the relationship between a husband and wife. He's, he's a creational theologian, explicitly. Jesus also mentions creation when he's asked by some of his uh, interrogators about the issue of divorce and remarriage, and Jesus appeals to Genesis and the creation account. Peter doesn't do so explicitly, but creation nevertheless is in our passage because Peter says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now this phrase is creational in every sense. Notice he doesn't say wife, but he says woman. So we're talking about the female sex, and that's a different word, and it's intentional. And it's a woman, or the female, who is a vessel. This is an unusual phrase in the Bible. It's used probably a half a dozen times in different contexts. Ordinarily, a vessel simply means a container, like a jar, often a clay jar. Sometimes vessel stands for the things that it contains and vice versa. So we see the word vessel when uh, an individual is carrying his possessions, and the possessions are goods, is simply, the word in the original is simply vessel, but the things it contains are what's most important. And then figuratively, vessel here and other places is used to describe a human being. Now, when a human being in the Bible is described as a vessel, there's a reference to its being made. It's made out of clay, for instance. Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where that phrase earthen vessels appears, there's an emphasis on our humanity, our created reality. We are not God, we are creatures. And in that passage, he says the treasure is God in us. We're not the big deal, it's God in Christ who's the big deal. And then in um, 1 Thessalonians, a man is told to take care of his vessel in honor. It's an interesting phrase because it's not exactly clear if you, if you were to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, where it says there, is, or rather, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, it says that, that a man is to take care of his vessel. It might suggest that he's taking care of his wife or it's ambiguous, it might mean that he's to take care of himself in the marriage relationship. The meaning isn't exactly clear. In any case, vessel points to our created reality. 
I think it points to the fragile nature of a human being. I think it points to the created aspect of a human being. I think because most vessels in the ancient world were clay, I think it it points to the fact that man was made from the dust of the ground. There's a hint of the actual substance of our creation. We're made from the dirt. Dirt man. Now it says that the woman is the weaker vessel. I think this also brings us into the sphere of creation. It's very clear that Weaker is an adjective describing the kind of vessel that she is, which is to say man also, the male is also a vessel. Now Peter doesn't go into detail describing in depth the characteristics of both created vessels, the male and the female vessel. He's writing briefly and writing in some and in in an overview and we're, we're not meant to be told everything but we're also invited to explore what he might have meant by implication. So the implication is man too is a created vessel. And in that sense, man and woman stand in total, absolute equality before their creator. Both creatures made in the image of God. Both fragile clay vessels, if you will. But the description given of the woman is that she is weaker. So there's a difference between the two created beings while there's also commonality. Both created beings, both made in the image of God, and yet not identical in every way. The woman is a weaker vessel, and by implication, the man is a stronger vessel. Now, this doesn't speak, I don't believe, specifically or primarily to a woman's mental capacity. There's not a a statement here about the different intelligence or IQ uh, between a man and a woman. I think it's speaking specifically to human physical strength. Weaker means that men are physically stronger than women. Now, this shouldn't be controversial. It really shouldn't. Yet it is. Men are bigger, stronger, faster and heavier than women. Almost all men and almost all women. These are stereotypes, these are generalizations. They're remarkably true consistently across all cultures, in all societies, through all history. One author explains these differences in terms of using running as an example, and I was a track athlete in high school and in college, so. Uh, it caught my attention. He says, if you look up the all-time track records for high school boys in the United States and you compare them with the world record of all women around the world, you can see that the fastest boys in our country are faster than the fastest women around the world. What this means is, is that comparing boys to men, there is no comparison. The fastest high school boys can't keep up with the fastest adult men. But if that's a wide gap between the fastest high school boy and the fastest adult men, the gap between the fastest adult men and the fastest adult women is like a Grand Canyon. And running is an easy example. It's like the least physical, the least brutish, the least, you know, 
strength-related comparison that we can come up on, come up with. Yet we live in a time and in an age when obvious things aren't so obvious and need to be stated. And one of the jobs of a preacher is to state the obvious. And this is an obvious thing. In his wisdom, God has baked in, it's a designed feature, that the woman is physically not as strong, weaker than the man. This is a loving design. It's a creational feature by the hand of a good and loving God. And these differences are to be understood, our text says, by a Christian man who desires to be the man of the house. Look at the text. It says, live with your wives. By the way, the word live means dwell in the same house with her. You are sharing the home. So as you share your life, as you share your home, you are to do so with understanding regarding her physical makeup, who God has made her to be. This is a creational responsibility. You've been made in the image of God. Your wife has been made in the image of God, different than you, and you need to understand what that means. There's something about your creation, your biology, which made you, brothers, your physicality, It's given you a responsibility as the head of your house, the man of the house, to understand your wife. One thing I think this means is that the primary burden for eking out a living and scratching out enough money to pay the bills falls primarily to the males because it is hard and it takes strength. It doesn't mean that a wife is forbidden to work. It doesn't mean that she's forbidden to work outside the home. Especially in a modern information-based economy, there are things that a man would have traditionally done or had to do these days that are done by robots. And it doesn't take a lot of strength to run a computer to program a robot, for, for instance. But I also think we should realize that the so-called information economy comes at a a risk of compromising our creational responsibility. As the modern age advances, we seem to get farther and farther away from who we are as human beings. And these so-called technology or media that help us live better lives seems to run the risk of dehumanizing us rather than making us more human. Maybe we're sad and depressed and struggling as a society, and yet altogether um, dealing with these problems because we don't work as much as we used to. And this goes for both men and women. Less work, but more tired and less satisfied. AI is taking over, right? Now, technology is a good thing. It, It helps us in so many ways. But there are some fundamentals that don't change. Men are made to work. Our bones, our hearts, pumping blood through our bodies, the way we sweat, the way we rest and recover and get back at it, this is what we're made to do. And when you understand your wife and how God has made her and your relationship to her together as you share the house together, 
you will understand your calling as a man of the house. I wonder about the women, if you recognize this about yourselves. Are you also perhaps in denial of the truth that is right in front of your noses? Maybe as a young person, you bought a lie that gender differences don't matter. This is nothing but a half-baked truth from the marketplace gods. This is not Kipling's gods of the copybook headings. This is not something that a wise teacher wants you to repeat with careful handwriting over and over that it might seep into your soul. Last Sunday when I talked about a woman's calling to be a godly woman in, in her home, I mentioned the importance of flexibility and discernment. As a woman seeks to submit or to be subject to her own husband, she can't do so in a cookie-cutter fashion. There's no playbook or rule book in any given situation. Your husband and you have to kind of hammer this out. Every couple is different. Every situation, circumstance requires judgment and, like I said, flexibility. I think, likewise, a husband has to be flexible as he thinks about this notion of his creational responsibility. How do I provide for my family? What are my circumstances? What are my wife's circumstances? What are my gifts? What are her gifts? What season of life are we in? Where do we live? But flexibility and discernment and, and using wisdom cannot take us away from the basic fundamental calling that a man has a creational responsibility in his headship role. It's based on creation. Don't let modernity and technology and convenience and the pursuit of, of vacation and a bigger home and nicer things and a college education or whatever it may be for your children take you away from that. Not every man is going to earn a living, by the way, with brute force. Some men use their manliness with a pencil and paper. So even amongst the men of the church or the men of our society, we see a beautiful diversity of callings in which a man's creational responsibility is worked out or hammered out. But however you arrange things, you have a basic calling by God, and it's different than your wife. So now you know it. You need to think about it. You need to work this out. Christ is calling you to, to re-examine this question. How am I doing it at my basic responsibility to be the man of my house when it comes to who God has made me to be? And by the way, what does your wife think? If you're married, you need to understand her. What are her thoughts on the matter? If you're in a Christian marriage, she has substantial wisdom. We're going to get to that in a moment. You, you neglect your wife's wisdom about this matter of your creational calling to your own peril. You see, you're living with her. You chose her. She chose you. And you were one flesh. It's amazing what you can find, brothers, when you actually talk to your wife. And then listen I know I'm, I'm asking a lot here. You know, closing your mouth and pretending like you have something to learn. 
You do. Do you know how she feels about your current setup? Do you understand her perspective? Now, she's going to have a bias, obviously, but she's not stupid, and she believes in you. She has a dream for her home. See, she's also the the head of the house in in her own way. It's it's an interesting dynamic. The scripture calls a woman to be a good manager of her house, and it calls the man to also be a good man of the house. And these are distinct but complementary authorities that, that orbit around one another in a very dynamic manner. So her viewpoint is important. And when you, when you listen, when you work this out together, you will forge what I might call, and this is just for the guys now, a plan of attack. You know, treat it like a game or a battle. Go about it in a, in a workmanlike fa- fashion. Treat it like a project. And get after it. Start with the simplest, easiest thing and work your way down the list. You might need to correct areas of neglect, laziness, sin. Stepping up to the plate, taking responsibility, creational responsibility where you've dropped the ball. Recently, Polly and I have revamped our family finances. What that meant is I stopped pretending like the money was always okay and it was all her job. And it was painful. It took me about two and a half days, like, Six hours both days, you know. I was burning the midnight oil, the candle at both ends, getting down in the weeds. I even had my green eye shade, guys. I hate that stuff. But I discovered when I got into the weeds of our family's numbers, like the real numbers, I now knew why my wife was worried. And why when I told her, Wife, submit. I'm in charge of our finances. She wasn't listening, and she was right. Now, I didn't really say that, and she really did listen, but still, I discovered a problem that I was working very hard to ignore until I couldn't ignore it anymore, and God called me up on short. So depending on how bad things are in your family, in your marriage, change will definitely not happen overnight. And you know, brothers, there may be some elements of change in your relationship that will never change. There may be some things that need to change that might never change. You're still called to be married to her. You're still called to work on it. And yet you need to trust in God's wisdom that he's going to help you change the things that need to change. In terms of this matter of understanding, I have much to say, but I can't say any more this morning. I will refer you to James 1.19. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, men, that word of instruction is for both of the genders. But I'm giving it to you because there's no way you're going to understand your wife if you don't listen to her. And by the way, you need to start by listening to the Holy Spirit, listening to God. Be quick to listen to the Lord. And when you start with your your relationship with God, reading his word, listening to the Lord, then your wife will not seem nearly as terrifying and threatening.
That's the first characteristic of the man of the house. He has a creational responsibility. The second characteristic of the man of the house is that he is to have redeemed conduct. The lifestyle, brothers, that you are to live in your house is redeemed. Now, I'm getting this phrase from 1 Peter 1.18. Go ahead and turn there, or turn back a page, if you would, in your Bible. Uh, well, verse 17, 1.17. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, here it is, conduct yourselves, your lifestyle, your conduct should be with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were redeemed or ransomed from the futile or empty, vain ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So, guys, when you hit dating age and then marriage, engagement in marriage, and then you're newly married, and this is still true. I'm celebrating my 30th anniversary this summer, and there's some things that I'm still doing. There's a program that's running in your mind, and it's not a good one. The program is what you define a man to be, the kind of man you saw your dad often is a major shaping of this, and now maybe you're trying as hard as you can to be the opposite, and you're creating a whole new set of problems, by the way, with that overcorrection, the pendulum swinging way to the opposite side. There's other mentors and influences in your life, perhaps in your life, perhaps a big brother, an uncle, a teacher, a pastor, possibly. And you're bringing all of these things into your marriage, and you hit play, and then you realize it doesn't work. And so you need to be redeemed. Now, if you grew up in a Christian home, this still applies. Because for a child, a young boy, he, he can't see always the difference between his father's godly behavior and then the hypocrisy and the justifications and the you know, shortcuts that he's taking. A boy can't see that until you start to try to actually run that program and you see this is actually terrible for my wife and for my family. And so the redemption that's needed, the ransom from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, isn't just if you grew up in a non-Christian family or have no father, or you know, taking a photocopy from social media. It's, it's all efforts to be a father and a husband require redemption. It requires renewal, the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so our text, back in chapter 3, verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since she is an heir with you, a co-heir of the grace of life. Your primary identity as the man of the house, is someone who has received an inheritance from Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins. This is your fundamental cornerstone. 
And we saw in chapter 2 that, that God the Father has laid in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, your futile way of being a father and a man and a husband in your house is causing people all around you to stumble. And you're creating problems everywhere you go. But what redemption does is it begins to renew and revitalize that empty way of life into a way that actually shows honor, as the text says. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. She is an heir with you of the grace of life. This phrase, grace of life, speaks to redemption. Grace means I receive something that I don't deserve. And so, husbands, as you are the man of the house, the the overwhelming feature of the household should not be one where people get what they deserve. Your wife is an heir of the grace of life. She with you is, is promised heaven. And so the culture of the home should be one in which the promise of heaven, which is an undeserved gift, is freely given to everyone who is in the home. Starting with her. Not you did this, so I'll do that. That is the opposite of the grace of life. That is the curse of death. There's a joke in our house, which is, I don't care what happened, I just want to know who did it. You know, this, this is not a redeemed conduct. And, and this is why a pastor and a church leader needs to have, be someone who manages his own household well. This isn't like all the children are in order and have matching outfits, although that's cute and nice occasionally. But the management of a household is the grace of life. Is that the air that people are breathing? Are we breathing God's grace in our relations with one another? The big purpose of your, of your life together as a house is that you're headed towards heaven. And marriage is a God-given and temporary institution in which you are helping one another get there. Not stumbling one another by your behavior towards each other. Particularly this morning, I'm speaking to the men. You are to help your wife get to her promised destination because your father sent his son to shed his blood for her. And so your conduct is to be redeemed. You need to treat her as a sister and not as property or an enemy, God forbid. I think of this as part of your mission. If you you with your wife, men, are heirs of the grace of life, and she is the weaker vessel in this partnership of equals, I know that's seeming paradox, but that's the nature of human, human marriage. If that's the case, then what is your mission together? Are you actually working together to accomplish the mission of your household? 
How well are you working at this? Where are you struggling? Man, we can get very discouraged when we feel like we're failing and not living up to our responsibilities. So maybe you're feeling like I'm beating up on you this morning. I am a little bit. But I'm telling you that Jesus loves you. If, if, you, if you had already arrived, he wouldn't have died. And you can't, you can't get there from here. No amount of personal life change will ever get you out of being a sinner. And so, yes, the the sermon is is meant to be a little humbling, a little confrontational, but not, not depressing because you're an heir of the grace of life. And the very things that are coming to your mind, areas in which you and I have failed, are the very reason he has given you life in the first place. He died for your sins. Characteristic number one, creational responsibility. Characteristic number two, redeemed conduct. The third one is a solemn warning that is given. And it's the third thing that characterizes you as a man of the house is that you'll listen to this warning. Will you listen? They are heirs with you of the grace of life, our text says. Live with them with understanding so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, a note about warnings. Warnings are given to sons, not orphans. God says, I'm disciplining you. I'm present and involved in your life. And I'm admonishing you because I love you. I'm desiring you to grow and to be more more like the son that I purchased with my son's blood. This man is a redeemed man. He's an heir of life. You, brothers, are are blood-bought sons of the king. You are baptized children of the heavenly father. The warning, therefore, is given as an an in-house warning. This is a, a family warning. So you don't need to hold the warning at arm's length because it's going to hurt too hard. You can trust that the God who loved you and who has made you a son of destiny, an heir of heaven, this God is warning you so that you will get the very thing he's promised you. The warning, you see, is a means to his end. Now I know the warnings of of Scripture and the warning this morning about your prayers are sometimes hard to hear. But it's, it's the darker tones in the, in the painter's palette that sometimes bring out the vivid colors. It's the minor keys, the minor chords for a musician's composition that bring the resolution home to our hearts. And the warning is that your prayers will be hindered if you will not try, by God's grace, and endeavor to understand your wife. And if you're oblivious, or worse, opposing your wife, oblivious to her needs, or opposing her, God will hinder your prayers. Your prayers are hindered. Now, what does this word mean? It's actually a military word. 
and based on the old dictionary where I did my study of this word, it refers to the actions of a troop of soldiers in retreat. And as a soldier is retreating from the advancing enemy, the soldiers will, will beat up the road really bad and they'll throw trees and rocks in the way and they'll burn bridges. In other words, they're trying to slow down the enemy that's pursuing them. So what's being described here, the irony, is that God is pursuing you and by failing to live with your wife as your shared partner in life with understanding, by, that, by failing to do that, you're acting like God is your enemy. And you're throwing up hindrances and trees and you're burning bridges to, to, to slow down God's pursuit of you. God who loves you. That's the irony. I know this is a hard word, but I've challenged the women to subject themselves to you in, in love as full partners in equality to subordinate themselves to your leadership. And they are willing, but they have a lot of questions about the plan. Actually, they'd like to know the plan. That would be helpful for starters. And then they have some questions about some of the details. Yes, the details, men, of the plan. They want to know why there is so little vital, real, authentic spirituality in the home. They want to know why we keep going over and over the same mistakes and problems that you said you were going to fix. You can't just boss people around. Neither can you constantly excuse yourself from conflict. Understanding your wife means mixing it up and getting in there and rolling up your sleeves and doing the dirty work, but in a way that's, that's gentle and kind and Manifest the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruits of the flesh. The grace of life is your common destiny. By failing to talk that through with her and how you're spending the few brief moments of shared human existence that you have with this other human being, by failing to plan that out and talk that out with her, your prayers are hindered. And the irony is, as you pray to God, God, why do I have this marriage why am I struggling this way? Why are my kids doing this way? Why is my life so fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is? That prayer is hitting a stainless steel ceiling in part because there's work to do that you aren't willing or haven't done. And God in his mercy is closing his ears temporarily. He's going to get you. He's a pursuer. And in his grace, he's going to get over all those obstacles that you've thrown down. But by slowing down his pursuit... He is showing you that you need him and you need your wife. That's what he's trying to say. I love the example of hindrance in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. Somehow the pride that gets mixed in to all of our gifts, men, it drives love out the back door. And your pride is quenching the spirit of love both in your relationship with God and with your partner. By the way, the chief hinderer in the Bible is Satan. 
1 Thessalonians 2.18. Satan would, would love nothing more than to hinder your prayers. And by following this, this program that you're running in your mind of what a man is and what a man should do and who a man has to be, and not going to the scriptures for that blueprint, you are allying yourself not with the heir of life, who's your wife, and her Savior, but with the enemy of both of your souls, Satan. To be specific, some of you men, your prayers are hindered because of timidity. Maybe your wife is a stubborn, strong-willed, opinionated person. Awesome. We need more women like that. But you need to rise to the challenge for this unique creature that God has given you as your wife. Perhaps your prayers are hindered because you're an angry, impatient, and selfish man. Rather than recognizing in humility that your wife is a joint heir of the grace of life, you treat her like property or treat her shamefully or some other thing. So if the timid man needs to man up, the angry man needs to shut up. But both of us, both kinds of men, we need to stop the, the hindrances to our prayers. This phrase, in conclusion, man of the house, is actually a title of a book that, that inspired my sermon title this morning. And the author, Chris Wiley, observes that just as a wife traditionally leaves her father's house and takes the name of her husband in marriage, a husband also undergoes a change. A man undergoes a change, that is. He leaves his father and mother, according to Genesis 2, and clings to his wife. He leaves his house, too, in a particular manner. And in cleaving to his wife in marriage, he becomes a husband. And this is cool. You know what that word actually means? Housebound. Husbound. It's probably German. So a man's new reality is not on the prowl. He's not wandering everywhere, kind of aimless and homeless. He has a home, and his home centers on his wife and their union together. His marriage gives him a new identity, a new mission. Maybe you weren't ready for it. Maybe no one taught you the ropes. No excuse. You now know. It's time to get busy. So regardless of what the problems are, your mission, and I'm ending with this, should sound something like the Lord's Prayer, and actually Will prayed this in his pastoral prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my house as it is in heaven. Now that's the man of the house that I'm praying for, for myself and for every one of us. I love this as a motto. Joshua chapter 24, maybe you know this. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for being a father from whom all, a pater, from whom all patria, fatherhood, all households derive their names. And I know in a, in a group this big, that there are many challenging circumstances and details. Difficult marriages, broken marriages, failed marriages, people desiring to be in a relationship, and everything in between. 
But Lord, this picture of a godly household is one that we all need to hear. We certainly need it as a country. We certainly need it as the Christian church. And we need it as Mercy Hill. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, through the promise of this grace of life that you have given to us in Jesus' death and resurrection, that you bring a breath of renewal to our households, that you bring the gospel of God's grace as a stronger and a weaker vessel partnered together in pursuing God's grace in the few breaths that we have until we meet you in eternity. Life is so short. So may this be a a wake-up call and uh, an encouragement to get busy about being on mission for Jesus in our homes. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.